Hello and welcome to What Goes Around. My name is Eamon Murta. My name is Deb Grant. And on this week's show, we have the fabulous Emma Warren. And she has written a fabulous book called Dance Your Way Home. And it's absolutely brilliant. It's all about, well, dancing. And she is great value. You're going to love it. We have hardcore rave DJ legend Billy Daniel Bunter on the show. And he's got some amazing stories about knocking over phone boxes to buy records and, uh, you know, having your door money stolen by gangs and also having a fantastic rave empire. Shall we part? Eamon Murda, what goes around? Well, I know recently uh, you at Six Music have all been raving away, haven't you? Uh, raving away, yes, always, yes. always yes. raving. I mean, you had yeah. your big rave day. Yes, yes, we did. This we and did. rave that, and, which obviously sparked millions of conversations across the land about <laughs> that's not raving, that's raving, this is that, and that's the it's other. It's always the way. Oh, it's a bun fight, isn't it? It really mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. Well, I. I kind of, um, I get a little bit caught up in this because, you know, as you know, I like to hoover up every documentary and thing that I can find about music history. And the interesting thing about um, house music and techno and all that kind of stuff is that the the tellings of the history are so jaundiced. It's unbelievable. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, it, it, basically... London thinks it invented the world mm-hmm. and everything came through London. Manchester quite rightly point out that they had acid house parties, you know, a year before any of the, the London clubs were doing it. And there's this huge space in the middle which everyone just ignores. The interesting thing about the whole rave culture, for example, is that it started with a couple of little places and then very quickly it spread and it spread all over the country. You know, they were doing it in, in Blackburn, they were doing it in Newcastle, they were doing it in Coventry, they were doing it all over the country but when you see the documentaries they almost exclusively focus on london and manchester Mm. and i kind of found my my hardcore in the midlands yeah and it's really interesting uh, that that story is never told because people used to come from all over the country to the eclipse in coventry where i used to go raving and it's it was an amazing amazing club with an atmosphere the like of which i have never tasted since mm. but no one mentions it and no one mentions the fact that uh that the eclipse for example uh, which was run initially by amnesia house who were doing raves in spain during the acid house years you know th- this is early stuff this mm. is early work and then the eclipse became the first legal all-night club so eff- effectively it was the first super club not in manchester not in london not in liverpool oh, it's weird that it never gets mentioned i suppose people mm, just have a narrative and they're trying to make it fit that's yeah. it. That's it. And, you know, and it made me start thinking about um, when when I was seeing all the various discussions going on online, you know, angry Londoners claiming they invented the wheel and, mm-hmm. and Manchester people just generally calling Londoners idiots. Um, <laughs> but, there, there, you know, there's so much more to it. So I started like kind of scratching around and thinking about it. And I found this wonderful archive of stuff. So it's all audio. Uh, it's like an audio documentary. And it is uh, about Coventry and Amnesia House and all of that scene that, that sort of grew up there. And it's uh, presented by MC Man Paris, not Man mm. Parish, mm-hmm. Man Paris, who's a Coventry lad. And it kind of, the, the series starts from uh, before the party. So it starts like with Scar and racism and football hooliganism. 
and it paints such a mad mad picture of of a society that has kind of gone thankfully mm. where you know fighting that was the entertainment for the weekend yeah. do you know what i mean and football hooligan firms and you know people from different estates in the same town would all just constantly be hooking up for a bit of a bit of a dust up do you know mm. what i mean anyway so this this thing it's called reflectionmediaart.com and it tells the story from from before the party started when when life was just basically it sounded like a violent drunken exercise <laughs> and then acid house comes in starts to change a little bit and then rave comes in and the obviously the drugs um xc comes in and the whole thing stops like on a sixpence suddenly there is no football violence yeah it's not happening anymore there is no postcode violence or any of that. Everyone's going to the same club in the centre of town, you know, and they're all having a bloody brilliant time. And and that goes on for a couple of years with like literally no trouble. Yeah. And it's really interesting, A, hearing the stories that aren't from London or Manchester, but B also like the the sort of confusion on, on some of the people telling it was just like, what I can't understand is why did they want to stop it? <laughs> Because beforehand, it was a war zone. Yeah. And then everyone's like having a hug and they're walking home together. And yet, the government just had to crush it. It's a really yeah. interesting yeah. thing, you know? Yeah, that's an interesting perspective because I've heard you tell the story that way too. And I feel like I haven't heard it told elsewhere. Except for kind of folklore, when we talk with guests about that era, you mm. know, people who remember it the same way that you do. So that's really interesting that there's someone else who's telling the story that way yeah and it seems to be quite uh you know it, it it's kind of universal across the country uh, we've got uh billy bunter uh mm. interviewed this week and he was saying the same sort of thing you know in dalston although it was more of an insular scene because no one went into dalston apart from people who lived in dalston <laughs> um but they had all that football hooligan element and all the, the roughness and the fighting and all that kind of stuff and again it just stopped on a sixpence and culturally I think there are very few times when that happened yeah. because I think maybe when you look, think back to the 60s there's kind of a rosy glowed kind of oh it was a nicer gentler time and everyone was having joysticks and being nice <laughs> to each other but actually very little actual 60s culture was taken in at the time across the country mm, you know they yeah. really were little hotbeds of of cities you know yeah. it was hard to have long hair in Nuneaton yeah you know? um, but uh, the, the rave thing happened so quickly and so, you know people were mobile uh, and could get around it yeah. was you know it's pretty the internet and all that but you had people getting coaches from Blackpool all the way down to Coventry from Edinburgh down to Coventry from Jesus. you know just insane insane thing and then imagine raving all night and then getting on a coach with 30 oh. people for a five-hour trip home oh my god <laughs> awful but yeah it's reflectionmediaart.com and if you go to the films and audio section it's a brilliant like series of stuff, and the, and the the house years uh, and the story of the eclipse and stuff is fascinating. And the best thing about it is, uh, they've got all of the tapes because this industry built up recording because you couldn't buy the music anywhere. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So you know, unless you went to an import store and there's only a like, handful of those, everyone wanted to hear this music. You couldn't buy it, so they recorded the sets of all the DJs, 
And that became a massive business. They were selling like, you know, 100,000 cassettes a week. Jesus. You know, driving all over the country to different places, dropping off these cassettes. So it became a real industry. But as a result, they've also got this incredible archive going right back to the early days of what the DJs were playing and what the MCs were saying. Uh, you know, and some of the, the little events that happened at various times, they can pinpoint those and play the audio. And they give, it's, it's not like a mixtape, this is definitely a documentary, but they give some space so you can hear the mix, you can hear the MC, you can, you can you know, hear what we were all listening to at the time. Possibly, possibly my favourite, up there with the Jeremy Daller uh, documentary, mm. Everybody in the Place, the, certainly one of the best looks at Rave that I've, I've found so far. This sounds amazing. Who's behind this, do you know? Well, I get the feeling it's, um, it's kind of a, a, a funded arts project mm. centred in Coventry because it really is it's telling the story of, of Coventry and the town and the culture that was going on in it. Like I say, Man Paris does all the presenting and he's really nice as well. He's very kind of, uh, I don't know, like a very, kind of humble but puts himself in front of everything. Yeah. It's, it's got, you know, he's, he would like, and here's... Uh, such and such a DJ, and yours truly on the mic, you know, <laughs> and it's kind of, but there's there's such an endearing quality to him yeah. that you kind of want to listen to more of his story. Maybe so, we should talk to yeah, him. Get him we on the should, phone. yeah, we should. I'm going to dig out all the rave ghosts and uh, interview them one by one. Yeah. Hardcore will never die, that's what they say. There have been many books about dance music, about reggae, about rave, about house, about this club or that club, about the innovators and operators behind the controls. But what sets Emma Warren's new book, Dance Your Way Home, A Journey Through the Dance Floor Apart, is that whilst it touches on all these aspects, it focuses on the dance. Not just the moves and the shapes thrown by the experts, but on the easily attained spiritual joy that comes from dancing together. It's a love letter to atmosphere, to friendship, and to the release that dance music delivers. So we're really pleased to have Emma Warren on the show. Hello, Emma. Hello, Eamon. Thank you so much for what a lovely way to frame what I was trying to do. Thank you. Well, I think it's, you know, one of the things that I really enjoyed about the whole experience of the book was that it wasn't like a, a list of who did what when. It wasn't, um, you know, a sort of homage to a particular artist or anything. It was an homage to the people who were at the dance, the people in the dance, the, the, the actual people who, who go out and make the scene happen, you know, the, the clubbers who form a proper club. And that's quite unusual. Um, how did you um, first start to think about uh, this book? Was it because part of it seems to be quite a personal story and part of it is a broader cultural history. So which came first in your head? Well, first of all, I just want to say, isn't it funny that the dancers, the dance floor, the ordinary dancers are so invisible in the history? Yes. It's yes. mad when you think about it. It just seems absolutely um, almost beyond belief that that it's not a story that's more commonly told, but it's not a story that's more commonly told. Usually it's about the DJs or the producers or the promoters, or if you're lucky, like some other people who worked in the clubs or the mm. dance spaces. Without us on the dance floor, there's nothing. It's very much how we look at um, the podcast itself, as we try and look about. Not obviously, we we talk about the the people who made it and the and the the various facts and figures that go with it all. 
but we really concentrate on the experience of the person who takes in the music. And I think that's what set your book apart, really. Um, it felt when I was reading it like quite, like I say, quite a, um, a personal journey in some ways. But then there was all this other stuff. So which did come first? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I think um, I think you're right. And there's a good um, sort of uh, like sympatheticness between what you're doing and how you do it and what I'm doing and how I do it, mm. um, focusing on the people who receive it as opposed to the makers. Um, in terms of which came first, I, in a way I can't separate those because I am me on the dance floor. <laughs> and, you know, I had a long, long, long stretch writing about dance music from the position of the dance floor. And so, you know, from my, from the very beginning, from my early 20s, I knew that my ability to write about dance music was based on my presence on the dance floor. Mm. And that if I was not on the dance floor, probably I had no business writing about it. So I can't really say which came first, but there was a point when I knew that I wanted to write this book that I realised I would have to put myself in it a little more than perhaps um, I was comfortable with mm. because I understood that all this stuff, even though it's very obvious, it's, it's a little hard for people to understand because we have no language or framing for it and that people might be more prepared to come with me if I took them on the dance floor with me and explained why it mattered to me. Yeah, and I think one of the interesting things as well, certainly in the the setup at the start of the book, is how I think if I was to look at a book and it promised to talk about dance music and the dance especially, I might be slightly put off because I might start thinking, oh, this is all about, you know, funky moves and, you know, can I do the, the turtle or whatever. But actually, you do a really nice job at the start of the book of just pointing out how much dance there is in the world and how much dance comes into all our lives in so many different ways. I mean, you go everything from Scottish sword dancing to, to jacking and, and all that good stuff. Do you know what I mean? So you've really, you've, you've, you've managed to paint a picture of, of a, a much wider influence that dance has. But I think that's because, and I think we all know this, it's just, again, we don't have the framework for it or the language for it, but the dance floor isn't just the nightclub, it's a wedding disco. You know, and in the olden days, it would have been the village green or it would have been the crossroads where people dance, where people gathered to dance. So we've sort of squashed the dance floor into this particular environment, which is very easily conflated with like, you know, the the shorthand rave is shorthand for drugs, isn't it? Or Mm. shorthand for hedonism or short for immoral behavior. But actually the dance floor, when you soften it out and when you expand it outwards and you realize that the dance floor is our kitchens, it's our front rooms, it's a house party, mm. it's a wedding disco um, or a work leaving do. Suddenly, the thing which appears niche and appears only for certain people suddenly becomes extraordinarily universal. Yeah, yeah, uh, definitely. And that's how, I, that's how I feel about it. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a lovely way to look at the whole subject. And uh, I, th- I suppose in a, in a way we're really blessed because I think we're probably of a similar age in that we grew up perhaps in you know, the most exciting time for dance music there might ever have been, really, because throughout the late 80s and 90s, it just seemed, because of the advent of technology and the way the world was moving, that there was a new... (laughs) Such a cliche. There's a new dance craze sweeping the nation, you know? But there really was. It comes in waves. Mm. You know, when I found out more about 1930s Ireland, wow, talk about a lot of dancing. Yeah. You know, you'd have tiny villages with a population of 291 with five dance halls in it. Mm-hmm. That's uh, my mum and dad used to go to those, used to call it the, the cows come home dances. 
<laughs> Probably in a cow shed as well. Literally, quite literally. Quite, yeah. quite literally. Um, so there's definitely been moments in time where there's been a lot of dancing. Also in the in the 30s in the UK as well, there were these huge dance halls for like thousands of people all kind of going around together doing really simple dances together like the Lambeth Walk. Mm. You know, anyone can do that. It's basically like a walking dance. When um, holiday camps were built, often they had huge dance halls in them for thousands of people. Mm. So I, I think it's tempting to think that the period in which a person was young is the period w- which was the high point. Maybe it's just the high point of a person's youth. Mm. But there's definitely been times when the conditions were set for more dancing and definitely times when the conditions were set for less dancing. And, and we maybe are in one of those moments now but the dancing is still happening for sure. Yeah, it definitely always goes on. I think what in particular with that era, though, it wasn't just that people were dancing. It's that, I mean, you, as your personal journey, you describe like several layers of basically completely different types of music. You know, you couldn't really compare the sort of chunky daft punk stuff directly to Jungle or directly to the early uh, Africa Centre, Soul to Soul type stuff. And yet... All of those completely different types of music, um, you seem to <laughs> swan effortlessly from one dance floor to the next. <laughs> well, I think I mean I, I don't, I don't know exactly how to respond to that. I'd say I think that um, lots of different things are coming into my head at once. Um, one of them is as a music lover, I've always wanted to be where the good music is, and mm. I've always wanted to be on the dance floor, finding a kind of little corner that I can just inhabit. Um, and so I definitely, my my dance floor interests have always been quite various and still are actually. Um, I'm as interested to go to a community dance class in a small village in Northern Ireland, like I did a few weeks ago, as I am to go to, um, to find a nice little corner at an Amma Piano or Afro House Night in Brixton. Mm. I love being in these different places and I don't see them as being particularly different. Yeah, I mean, I think I think a lot of people find that as they get older, they either they seem to go one of two ways. They either stop altogether and draw a line under all that, or they begin to realise that they can enjoy all of these different aspects, and that's a beautiful thing. And and dancing, as you as you so rightly point out in this book, is is like the thread that sews it all together. Mm. I mean, it's funny because the other thing I'm thinking of is um, I went to see a play that Travis Alabanza did at the Royal Court recently called Sounds of the Underground. And there's this kind of, and this is to do with navigating different spaces, and also that's to do with also the way in which I have to navigate my whiteness in spaces which are often mm. built by and for communities of colour. And there's this really brilliant moment in Sounds of the Underground where the compare says something like, Welcome to all my LGBTQ people, make some noise, and then says something like, Any straight white people in here, you know, <laughs> make some noise, do you feel welcome? And then you have some people shouting from the audience, Yeah, we feel welcome. And then the compare just says, Mm. <laughs> no no but they say mm, that's how privilege works isn't it well wow. you feel welcome anywhere yeah and so i when i heard that i thought mm, that's, a, that's a good little thing for me to remember about you know the swanning around is mm. maybe easier for some people and the courtesy of welcome is extended in different ways to different communities yeah well i think um from your writing you can tell that you you don't day trip into these things i mean one of the the aspects of the book i thought was really it just reminded me really of kind of what it's all about which is that so often when we talk about club music or clubbing we talk about you know clubbers that kind of 
pop in and out of these nightclubs and blah, blah, blah. But the essence of a club, as you point out in the book, is that it is a club. There are regulars. There are people that hold that scene together. And they're kind of, you know, they might only be a third of the of the people in the club, but that community is really what makes the whole thing tick, isn't it? It is, and I think there's something about repetition and going back um, and experiencing the same thing differently week in, week out, or month in, month out. Um, and so certainly I think that's a really lovely way to experience something and you get so much more from an environment when you do that than when you just go to um, a one-off. Mm. Which is why I just really respect people that put on regular nights because it's, it's so difficult to do, especially now. Yes, it takes definitely. so much effort and a lot of that effort is really invisible. Mm. And yet I feel like we should be so grateful to the people that are making these kind of like rootsy places still happen. They're, they're doing like a sterling job. Yeah, and of course it's a risk as well. You know, that a lot of these um, these dancers in these clubs, they come out of, you know, working class areas. They come from people with no money and no backing. All they've got really is the love of their music and their community. And so to put on that night is often a massive, massive risk for people. So, you know, it's not, it's not to, be, to be sneezed at, really. Yes, I mean, it's heroic and it's really important and it's completely undervalued. Absolutely. So um, I found as a, you know, I'm, a, I'm an older raver now. And one of the things <laughs> that has happened is I, I am dancing less, sadly. Um, um, I, I DJ a lot, so I'm at a lot of dances, but I'm mostly behind the decks doing the thing. Um, and this book really kind of made me think, uh, I'm missing a bit of the joy that I used to get from dancing and not dancing for 10 minutes like you talk about in, in the book quite often about uh, going to a night and then being there for four or five hours on the dance floor now, I haven't done that in <laughs> a long time if I'm honest but the, there's so much value in that and it's um uh, it's kind of it's like um I've got a taste for it again I want to go I want to go raving I mean I think it's so funny and, and again I think we're probably a similar age you know I first went out as a kind of you know 16 year old in 1988 um, mm. and I but I think um, there are still places which are happily intergenerational where you can find a little spot and just stay there mm. and for me it doesn't have to be a big thing it's not about having a big night it's just about being able to drop into that mode where you're just letting the music do the telling you what to do you're just there and you're gonna you know you're gonna be there for the duration. I had a lovely experience like that at a night called Moonlighting that um Marsha Marshmallow <clears throat> she's an NTS show, uh, runs with Leanne Wright and um Zakia Saul. And it's just like you know the music's just gonna be brilliant. You don't even necessarily know which order people are DJing, although you probably can tell to a certain extent, you just know that some serious selectors are mm. gonna ensure that however you choose to inhabit the dance floor, you're going to be able to dance out what you need to dance out. And yeah. you're just going to be able to um, have that kind of communion with them who are presenting the music and the people around you. And that's just really enjoyable. I think that is something that we kind of lost a little bit of during the whole super club era and afterwards, was that there was a stage where, you know, the, the, I once went to see Africa Bambata and um, he was playing a gig in Portsmouth and they had him up on this big stage and he walked on, everyone was looking at him, cheering at him, and he just said, right, 
I'm a DJ, forget I'm here. Everybody turned around. He made us all turn around and face each other. And he's like, I'll play for four hours. Not going to stop. I want you to look at each other and dance with each other. And certainly at the start of all the rave business that I was going to, the acid house parties and those sort of things, you often didn't know where the music was coming from or who was doing what in one order. Unless you had an MC there shouting the odds, then um, you just experienced the music um, as if it fell from heaven. Do you know what I mean? What a lovely way of putting it, yes. Because there's something about the configuration of a band or mm. a performer which puts people into a mode of something more passive as mm. opposed to active. And for me, and this could just be me, but maybe it's other people as well, sometimes I just want to be in a position where I can turn my eyes off yeah. and I can just tune into what's happening and respond on a level that is not about um, watching. Mm. And that's what I can get from, you know, with a high quality, when, when people are playing specialist music on a culturally powerful dance floor, and of course it's rare, it's not an everyday thing, but it's really precious. It is indeed. Um, as someone who's like steeped in, in dance music and all music really, I'm obsessed about all sorts of things, you know. Um, I found the book really, I mean, just wonderful because of the, the personal story in it, it really resonated with me. And the sort of, the facts that you put about each particular scene, about the dances, about the areas, about the innovators and the people, and the clubbers, of course, the people who actually do the dancing. All those stories really paint a beautiful picture and um, add so much more to the, the sort of story as a whole. I really enjoyed it coming from, from my experience, but I also think when I read it that people who, who, who have never been to a club, people who aren't into that scene, this is a great way to open your eyes to why people like it. You know, it's a it's a really thought-provoking and, and quite, um, I don't know, maybe it's because it, I've, I've got the audio book, so it, it, but it's, it's sort of soft-spoken. You, you're not lecturing down or, or trying to hammer in facts about this, that and the other to prove you know what you are. You're, you're very much telling the story as, as it goes along, and I think that gives something that a lot of books don't. What do you, as as the writer, what do you hope that, um, you know, your non-expert readers might take out of this book? I'm so glad you say that because I definitely recognised that I needed to work really hard in the writing to make sure that people who don't think of themselves as music specialists felt really welcome. And I worked really hard on that welcome mm. um, because I knew that, you know, people who... Um, with whom I share a lot of cultural material, people who know about dance music or have been involved in similar things to me, I knew that they would kind of basically trust me to tell them some interesting things. But I didn't just want to talk to them. You know, I wanted to talk to people who don't think they know anything about the dance floor mm. or even don't feel like they dance. So I, I definitely worked hard on what I might call ledges, making sure there were little ledges for people to stand on and feel confident in where they could survey these environments and recognize that maybe they did know something about them or maybe they were for them mm. or maybe next time they were in a dance floor environment they might want to test it out in a little corner and see how it felt to move to music because it's a terrible thing to be stilled mm. um, and it's a very human and humane thing to be able to you know join with your neighbors or your new family members or your colleagues in a bit of dancing yeah well I, I think you've really hit the nail on the head with with the writing because uh, 
like I say, not only did it appeal to me as someone who's done a lot of that, but I, I could, I, I kind of want to, I want to get other people to read it who haven't had that experience. Sometimes when I when I talk about going clubbing, um, especially with people who are very much more into a band situation, mm. um, they don't really understand. They, they, they kind of say, "What are you looking at? What do you, what's you know? What is it that's that that makes it special?" And I think the book kind of helps explain some of the the ways that it's a release of pressure, the way that it's a a, a community, even though everything's really loud and thunderous. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Ideally. <laughs> <laughs> but, that, you know, that that's really important because it, it, it it's actually going to a, a club. Certainly, if you go back over and over again, it you know, that notion of a club of, of friendships coming together, you do make friends on the dance floor. Sometimes you oh, don't yeah. even speak, but you see those faces and you know that, you know, oh, the girl with the camo top and the, oh that's the guy with the big puffer jacket always stands at the back but he's always smiling you know those things they they create an atmosphere in which you feel safe and elated and when you've got that you can really express yourself and let yourself go and there's a really important thing here about togetherness you know I sort of I came up with this phrase of the dance floor as being a technology of togetherness and I was really happy with that phrase because it's like a little portal people can people can receive it and say oh really how and then I mean it's really obvious you know when we move together we um, um, I use the phrase thicken our relationships mm. because there's something that happens biologically when you dance with someone on a really subconscious level you know that person is not your enemy because their body language is open they're telling mm. you something about who they are which means that um, there's someone with whom you can make you can become kindred with mm. yeah. so you know it is a place in which you can make connections with people you might otherwise not meet. And sometimes people say, oh, it's not political, is it? How can it be political? You're just dancing. But actually, we know it's political by the way the state responds. Yeah. Because the state will often, and, and has repeatedly, and when I say the state, I'm talking about the police, I'm talking about politicians, I'm talking about faith leaders, will often find ways to try and, at the very least, control the dance. Mm. And so even if we don't, it doesn't feel political, we know it is because of the responses that it receives and the disproportionate responses it receives. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's very well said. Um, so listen, uh, I, like I say, I really enjoyed the book and I'll be recommending it to all of our Thank listeners you. and just about anyone I meet in the street. Um, <laughs> I, I thought I'd check in a, a, you know, a little smash hits type question at oh, the I end, know. you know, one of these, these cheap ones. Mm. So I was getting goosebumps at many of the descriptions of various mm. places. Some I'd been to, some I hadn't. Mm. You talked a bit about telepathy, and I was like, ah, oh, sent back, <laughs> you know, the shutters lifting oh, on the. Oh, I did, and the shutters okay, coming up at 6 a.m. on the side of the warehouse and the sun rising over London. Mm. <gasps> oh, and the. Oh, just. But those sort of memories, they're, they're incredible. And and mm. because of uh, your your work and your passion for, the, for dance music in general, you've seen a few. So. Here's a tricky question. Mm. Which dance floor would you like to go to? Hmm. Well, I'm really not into going backwards. That's, a, that's I, a good I attitude. Need, <laughs> I need different things tomorrow than I needed yesterday, and I need different things next week than I needed five years ago. Mm-hmm. So I'm really enjoying, I'm looking forward to the next time I go to Deptford Dub Club at the Fox and Firkin in Lewisham. Um, I've been going pretty much every month for a little while now, and... It gives me the opportunity to um, dance it out mm-hmm. in community with fellow people from Lewisham. And I love it because it's really local. 
um, it's intergenerational uh, the music is good and the music is loud and I just really like it so that's what I'd choose sounds wonderful listen Emma it's been a real pleasure to talk to you and I heartily recommend the book thank you so much for your time and uh, it's particularly enjoyable as well because I actually um, uh, unusually for me I've, I've kind of only recently got into the notion of audiobooks mm. and so um, I, I've been listening to your audiobook and two great things about it uh, first of all you read it which makes such a difference I always think when you've got someone who isn't the author reading it it doesn't doesn't quite chime the same way but it, what was lovely is it, you know, I've had you in my ears for like nine hours of this brilliant conversation. <laughs> and I feel like I finally got a word in. <laughs> I know, sometimes I just won't shut up. <laughs> well, thank God for that. Please keep doing what you do. Thanks so much for today, Emma. And um, best of luck with the book. I really think it's, it's, a, it's a special, special tone. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. What we're going to do right here is go back. Way back. Back into time. Our guest today on What Goes Around is a legend of the UK rave scene. If you were to cut him in half, he would have the word hardcore running through him like a stick of rock. Daniel Light, a.k.a. DJ Billy Bunter, a.k.a. The Crowd Controller, has had an incredible career as a DJ that started off at the tender age of 14 when he made his debut at Dalston's infamous Labyrinth 2000 AD club night. Here is a man who literally grew up in the DJ booth playing for Raindance, Helter Skelter, Unity, Moondance, World Dance, Labyrinth and many, many others. Over his 30-year career, Daniel has played to hundreds of thousands of people. He's been a label boss, promoter, producer, and spearheaded movements like Happy Hardcore, Hard Dance, and Hard Trance. And his book, The Love Dove Generation, is a fascinating look at the madness of the rave scene from its very beginnings. And his story is one of a boy raised in chaos who carved himself a unique niche in UK dance culture. Today, Daniel continues to DJ relentlessly, as well as finding time to raise thousands of pounds for mental health charities through his sponsored bike rides across Europe. It's fair to say he never lost his hardcore. Daniel, welcome to What Goes Around. Thank you for having me. I love that. Oh, mate, you deserve every word of it, I have that, to that, say. That, that was brilliant. That was that was. That was 99.999% all true. <laughs> Good one. Let's, let's bury the point, point, point 0.1% and we'll just, uh, we'll just pretend it was all right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Loved it. Thank you. Now, I, I really wanted to have you on the show. We have, uh, I don't know if you've li ever listened to the pod, but basically we have people from all types of music on the podcast and we try and talk to them really not so much from like an RT kind of like tell us about your inspiration for your last album kind of point of view, but from a fan's point of view and from the, the point of view of, of people that just love and are obsessed by music. And yeah, as a DJ myself for many years, certainly not up to your level, but I've been doing my bit in the lower rungs. I know there's a, lo a lot of DJs and a lot of producers out there that frankly it's a bit of a chore to them but what I love about following you on Facebook and other things is every day I see joy coming from your pages about playing music and DJing to people oh mate listen it is an absolute privilege to still literally be doing this after all of that time I started in a record shop in 1989 aged 14 and I still literally have to pinch myself 
that people are still booking me continually. And now we have new era. There's a new era of like hardcore jungle, happy hardcore, what I call a post-COVID era of people, mm. literally more than half my age, like promoters and DJs and producers younger than my own children, <laughs> discovering what we did in the early 90s who are booking me to come and perform at their raves. The reason why I remain happy and the reason why this is not a chore is because I got thrown out of school when I was 15 and from that day of being thrown out of school to this day, it's always been good to me. Good to me, good to me to the point where I sat down during COVID, appreciated everything that had happened from the age of 15 and applied all of my promotional knowledge, all of my energy, all of my uh, passion and love for people. That's why we do this and set up my mental health charity to apply everything that I had learned. Not only am I grateful for doing what I do, I also appreciate the position that it's put me in and that's what led me on then to setting up my mental health charity to mm -hmm. help people. So all in all, I could never, through all the ups and downs of music, for, you know, every person within music has got their stories to tell, the highs, the lows, the happiness, the sadness, the fallings out, the amazing relationships. And I can look back from this day back to 1989 and say, this thing's been amazing to me, so I better make sure that I'm grateful and I better make sure that I'm as happy now as I've ever been within it and I love doing this yeah that is so so heartening to hear it's such a it's a really positive story and you know looking back from where where you actually started I mean I I can't imagine what it must have been like to be you know 14 years old and going into Dalston long before you could buy a flat white cappuccino and, you know, you know, walk up and down the high street happily, you know, wearing your brand new watch and shoes. When Dalston was quite a rough old place and yeah. uh, you, you ended up playing at really one of the seminal UK hardcore rave clubs. The Four Aces in Dalston, wasn't it, where yeah. Labyrinth 2000 AD started? That club was right at the beginning, wasn't it? I'm younger than than um, many of my peers who you see me on lineups with. So if mm. you take Rat Pack, LSD, um, Slipmat, all of those kind of DJs that you you always see me on at, at these rain dances, moon dances, mm. I'm like eight to ten years younger than my peers that you mm. see me on these lineups with, and then it was a completely different era of time and like as you say you would never have got a flat white coffee in Dalston in 1990 and I grew up around and in a period of time of the rave scene whereas if you go back and read all of the books about the infancy of 88 89 the football hooligans the drug dealers the kind of lawlessness of the of the rave scene the warehouse rave scene the field rave scene mm. i was discovered by joe labyrinth who all of the stories of football hooliganism and and that kind of side of it discovering the rave scene so many of the the legendary oh. stories and tales that were written were about people like joe labyrinth mm. who discovered me 
I'd already come from, I'm going to use the word law, lawless, but in an endearing and loving way. Yeah. I'd already come from quite a lawless family anyway. So being thrown out of school when I was 15, started my journey with Joe Labyrinth and Phil 2008, who were infamous 89 warehouse promoters. And then giving me, at the age of 15, this amazing billing and these amazing set times every Friday and Saturday in the heart of Dalston. The transition going from my family bringing me up around the market stalls and getting up to no good with my dad robbing phone boxes and stuff like that, then being involved with Joe Labyrinth, Phil 2008, the, the, the kind of characters that were that I was around at such a young age it never really strayed from the path of lovable rogues you know mm. like these these people to, to sum it up four aces was pre labyrinth was like a legendary reggae club in the 70s and 80s Dalston Lane was the absolute front line no one from outside of North London East London would go to would go to Dalston Lane. It was a completely different place. In the 70s and 80s, if you love reggae, if you was local to the club, like it was an absolute hub. And then when Labyrinth took it over in 1990, it then become like a rave hub. At, at the time they took it over, it was like still bleeps and bass house. Mm. You had the hangover of like 88, 89 acid. You had the hangover of the anthems of like the Warehouse 89 Summer of Love scene. It was pre-hearing the word hardcore. It was still, the, the, the establishment had shut down the illegal warehouse raves and it needed to move back underground into clubs. And 1990 is a bit of a no man's land in the history of the rave scene because it's either everyone's 88, 89 crazy, or it's like, all of the sudden hardcore and jungle from like 91, 92 onwards. But 1990 was a very, very fascinating year in that it's when it moved away from the warehouses, away from the fields, went back underground. Again, just to paint a picture, not only was Labyrinth in the heart of Dalston, any sane person wouldn't go to Dalston for a, a rave night out. They would go to Camden Palace or they would go to Astoria or they would go to safer areas and safer hubs. And being in the heart of Dalston where there was gangs, there was people trying to take over the door, you know, it, it was a real sketchy place mm. to go to. Labyrinth, Desire, 2018, they ruled the entrance and the outside of the club with an iron fist and completely created this safe haven in a place where it shouldn't have been a safe haven. And I think that's what makes the story of Labyrinth in Dalston so gargantuan mm. and so like mythical labyrinth story was already one of again back to all those stories of 89 promoters having trouble with other football hooligans gangsters taking over the doors people getting kidnapped for, and taken away for their door takings labyrinth had all of those stories in 89 and survived that then it survived um thatcher's britain and the police shutting down the raves then in true labyrinth style it finds itself once again 
on the front line of promoting in the face of danger in the heart of like Dalston and it survives it again. That's where I got my break and yeah. I was res I was resident there for five years every Friday and Saturday between 1990 to 1995 mm. and I watched every progression in rave music and I also watched the mood of the rave scene changing. I, I watched the progression of the trouble outside of the venue. I watched all of the ups and downs that went with the rave scene. Yeah to then by the mid 90s the super club era come so i watched a lot at a very very young age mm. i watched the the rave scene go from a what was basically house music and a lawless scene into all these different musics and a well-oiled run professional machine and yeah. and i watched that through my teenage years i mean that's that's it's kind of incredible that uh I think, you know, as someone who is, uh, I'm probably five years older than you, I think. Um, yeah. And I, I probably wouldn't have dared to get out to Dalston at that stage in my life without a doubt. But, um, you know, that, that period, um, it was a very strange time because, like I say, especially in the cities, it, it was it was still very rough. And when the rave scene came and took over and, you know, let's face it, the drugs moved in and they, and they swapped around from acid into ecstasy. There was such a bizarre cultural change amongst, you know, formerly what we in, in my, my school would call hard men, you know, suddenly yeah. becoming a little more open. It, it, it sounds like a cliche, but like so many people were opened up by the music and the drugs and generally the whole scene because it came, it became, against all the odds, a real thing of love and, and a culture of of you know you could be part of that and that, I, I think it's easy to understate that nowadays yeah i watched like i say from a very young age it fell into it all fell into place where in the 80s i'd grown up listening to reggae soul funk hip-hop electro new romantic electronic music i was fascinated by music from a very early age and my dad introducing me to soulful black music electronic mm. white music like all kinds of all kinds of stuff and when i when i was thrown into the into the hub of labyrinth mm. i discovered drugs really young like i did i popped my first e when i was like 15 mm. and you had a real where i'd studied music my mum and dad first introduced me to like motown and reggae and mm. other musics like i'd really studied music when i'd sort of popped an ear at a very young age when I was in the heart of the Four Aces, which I knew was a legendary reggae club. Labyrinth was like a huge mixture of different people from mm. different walks of life. Like it had a large black audience, a large white audience. It was for the first time, like it, it had straight and gay and lesbian people going there. It had old, it had, cause the, the, the rave scene in 89 and 90 was, was older than it was when it become 92, mm. 93 and more hardcore. So, and I had a real sense, uh, even at that age, especially taking ecstasy and that, come on at 15, I yeah. would never encourage my kids to do that, but a real sense of like this cultural shift, this, this cultural shift that like the music and the ecstasy was doing. And I always maintained throughout my entire adult life 
from 15 coming out of my teens to this very day that if we could feel that euphoria and togetherness through music whilst on drugs then there's no reason why we shouldn't be able to ex experience that not on drugs yeah. like it it should be a re reality and for so many people it has become a reality but in a in a post-covid generation where so much opinion and so much reality has been distorted we're seeing so much separation in opinion in mind frame that actually as i'm done a lot of what our generation in the late 80s and early 90s went to fix and yeah. repair and it's kind of like 30 33 somewhat 35 years later we're almost going full circle and going backwards we're almost going backwards in some of the mind frames mm. that have come in but our generation from my age upwards from 88 92 can be incredibly proud of of the cultural barriers the musical barriers the social barriers between working class middle class etc that were broken whilst on the dance floor and yes a lot of it was cliched through drugs but also a lot of us a lot of it gave us an insight of how you could actually think and be on or off drugs yeah and i think um one of the things that is really important to underline here is more important than just pharmaceuticals on a friday night was the music was incredible in terms of like there was just invention every week you heard yeah. something brand new it was like it was like a spaceship came down threw a few 12 inches out flew off again and you'd hear noises you'd never heard before you'd hear arrangements you never heard before you'd hear things yeah. mixed together yeah. And it must have been amazing for you, especially because I think uh, when I was younger, like so when I when I kind of got into it, sort of eighteen, nineteen, I was kind of aware of of you know life outside. I was already you know tr you know trying to find a job and and living in the real world and all that sort of stuff. But I imagine as a younger person, it must have just been a wave that carried you across. And I think the one constant I see in your life is like you love to follow the the music you you know you're not someone who's who's gonna nail themselves down and say oh i, I am now a garage dj i'm a yeah. jungle dj which a lot of djs did at that time in the past 30 years that has been a hindrance to my career like mm. that has been an absolute hindrance to my career in that like on the verge of like becoming even even bigger in a genre than i already was i decide oh i'm moving on slightly now and i'm going to take a bit of this genre and add it to this and do mm -hmm. that and and it has at some points felt like oh you shouldn't have quite done that the timing was <laughs> wrong there but then at other points it served me really really well mm -hmm. and 33 plus years later i get to this point where I am on Clockstock playing Classic House. I am at Singularity, a young, a rave run by a young 20-year-old playing brand new hardcore and jungle. Mm -hmm. I am going to hard dance or happy hardcore or jungle clubs and playing. And at this point in time, every path that I took actually means something and has got me to a point where I can play so many genres. If you think back to like the mid-80s, electro, hip-hop, mm -hmm boogie, soul, funk, 
disco, electronica. If you think back to, let, let's just say 85 for argument's sake, mm. and you go from 85 to 95 and you watch all of the music progressing into all of these different directions. I've never lost that. I've always wanted to keep progressing on. I've never wanted to just, I've always felt like I want to be in a record shop every mm. week discovering the next thing and discovering well, yeah. the next thing. And I, yeah, of course, your story kind of really begins at Paul's for Music record store in, um, in East London. That's right. Yeah. So let's let's get into your phonographic memories now. And I think it's a, it's a really good place to start. 1988, phase two reaching. Tell us about this track and what it means to you and what you remember about it. Well, over the years, everyone says give us your three give us three records and it's literally impossible to give mm -hmm. three standout records but there's one record from like my very first interviews in the 90s to this day that I reckon is in every single top three that I've been asked and it's phase two reaching and I think the reason why I choose this record is because I'm a humongous humongous disco boogie mm. gospel vocal fan and this record encapsulates this was 1988 moving records this record encapsulates the previous 10 years of everything that's great about gospel influence disco gospel influence boogie soul funk up-tempo dance music and it puts it onto a, a slamming 4-4-B the rave scene gets an emotive anthem, the, the early house scene gets an emotive anthem, and not only does it get an emotive dance floor moment, also this record has been with me through every up and down of my life, mm -hmm. and I, I guess it's the spiritualness of the church gospel-like feeling and meaning of the song and the words. We did all unite. Rich, poor, mm. black, white, football thugs, do good in everyday people did unite. And I think the emotiveness in the words of these records, again, sum up both the dance floor togetherness and what can be achieved in reality away from the dance floor. And, and phase two reaching never, never leaves my life, ever. like yours obviously you've had incredible highs where you've you've played to 20,000 people at a time and you've you've run successful nights and had hit singles and compilations that have gone gold and all sorts of brilliant yeah. things but you've had your fair share of, of downs as well because I guess the lifestyle and the kind of um 
there's a there's a certain type of chaos in the world of promotions where where things rise and fall very quickly and sometimes as you say especially with someone like yourself who's always looking for that new thing you can find yourself on the wrong foot sometimes and i know you you've certainly had a few a few downs is it is it always the music that picks you up during those well, times i think it's always the music and always the self belief uh, in yourself and like i've never lost that um if you go back to like 1989 and promoters like Genesis, Labyrinth, mm. Biology, and it was always like the struggle continues. The music will not be stopped. You will not stop our love for the music. You will not stop basically promoters, DJs, pirate radio stations, talking to the establishment that you will not stop our togetherness. You will not stop our belief in this music. And I'm a product of that year. and. Uh, as Billy Daniel Bunton, musically, my spirit goes way before then, but as me as a rave DJ, I'm a product of that 1988, 1989, the struggle will continue. Mm. And again, back to being so heavily involved with Labyrinth um, for five years, I watched that struggle continue to keep the party going, to keep the trouble at bay, to keep the police away to keep all of these things from stopping our love for this this dance music culture and I think the driving factor of why I'm still sat here today doing this in both the old generation of promoters and the new generation of rave promoters is I've always believed in the struggle I've always believed that like no matter what gets in your way you don't stop so for us um, we run record labels, we run events, I DJ, we have radio shows, and it's mm -hmm. like, we've had gangs taken over our doors. Yeah. They never stopped us, we're still here. Like this year is my, I was telling this to someone the other day, so this year is my 33rd year wow. of DJing without ever stopping. Wow. Ever, ever, ever stopping. I've never stopped. Big up, and, big up. And on top of that, this is my... 27th year of promoting of, of actually promoting events and it's and it's we've never stopped and it's like so whether it's a gang taking over your door or trying to rob your door in brixton and you still come back the next month and put on your party and of course um, you know you know that you've had it from both ends as well because uh, being so young and stumbling into it all i mean you had you had all the underworld side of it then you also had you know the tax man and all that come on clobber you when you least Listen, expected it <laughs> uh, when you're when you get thrown out of school at 15 when your parents um had no aspirations of buying their house and mm. you know you didn't know what an accountant was and you know it i was not grown up into that yeah. sensibility of money and that sensibility of stability and that sensibility of looking after the pennies so when I turned 20 and was no longer a teen and I, I found myself making music and I'd gone from being a London centric DJ for five years with all these people coming to Labyrinth every Friday and Saturday I then found myself up and down the country releasing records having a record label and all of a sudden having ridiculous amounts of money in the bank from from my record sales in the bank from my dj and i had no accountant 
I had no, I didn't understand tax or VAT. And then one day the door knocks, it's the tax man. Another day the door knocks, it's the VAT man. And it's like, what? Like, you know, you're 20, 21 years of age and you've got all of this money and it turns out that a whole bag of it isn't yours. And yeah. and you, you, you start learning a new lot of stuff that you mm. need to learn. And pretty much everything from the age of 15 to this day has all been learning and self-taught through the ups and the downs of mm. what has been thrown at me and I guess really as well and I've and I've often spoke about this when I've gone to schools or music schools to teach and speak of my um, journey mm. is that all of the mistakes were made via my generation for, for like it, the in the rave scene the music scene for then 30 years later to be learnt from yeah to, to be learnt from from generations to come like in in 89 90 there wasn't music schools to teach you how to dj and teach you about the business of music there was no to put it in a nutshell i didn't even care whether my name was on a flyer mm. i just wanted to make people dance i wanted yeah. to be on a record player in the corner of a of a house party or be on a record player in the corner of a club it, it didn't matter whereas now we're in a generation where agents demand where the the artist's name should be on a flyer mm. how big the font should be who should be on before <laughs> and after and in fact like back in the infancy it was like if someone was on above was above you on the flyer you'd go to that event and you'd prove why next time they they wouldn't be on the top of the flyer above yes. you um if someone who you was threatened by was on before or after you, you'd make a point of making them feel threatened by your set the following week. Mm. You know, that that now all of that kind of friendly rivalry has become quite sort of like money driven and mm. and egotistical if you like. Whereas whereas if you go back to the late eighties and early nineties if a promoter thought you was you, it was your time to be on the top of the flyer, he'd put you on top of the flyer, yeah. and you and it was that friendly rivalry that elevated DJs and elevated the skill and the craft and the music. Whereas now it's thirty years is a really long time, and so much has happened, and you know it's a completely different model now and a completely different beast now. And mm. not saying it was better in our day because everything changes and everything's different, but sometimes for self-gratification surely you'd want to earn your place at the top of the flyer yes, yeah. and not have your agent demand it within a cold business structure yeah if you like. I, mean, I think it, it just shows how much resilience you've had over the years and uh, i was interested to hear you talk about um you know the way on that phase two record there's sort of a, a, a gospel tinge and a soul tinge. And I think your your second choice, Gwen McRae, All This Loving I'm Giving, is, you know, that is a real soul boy tune. And uh, I wondered, how does that fit into your canon? Because it, obviously that line of, of black soul music is, is important to you, despite the fact, maybe, to some people, they would look at some of your output later on, the very hard techno and, and trance stuff, and think, well, is that where, where's soul in that? But it is important to you, isn't it? It's something it's, that's in you. It, my record collection is huge. There's like tens of thousands of records in the house, and 
the largest proportion of my record collection is 70s and 80s soul funk disco hip-hop elect early electro music mm. and again back to these favorite free records yeah. to choose over the years there would always be some form of 80s hip-hop record that i would choose because that was my first intro the electro albums were my first intro to to dj and music and wanting to be a dj but um gwen mccray like when i my dad would religiously take me to record shops like music power in haringey mm. groove records in soho this is like 84 85 86 when i was like 9 10 11 years old yeah. and then it would get to the stage where before i got thrown out of school i would bunk off school and just knock around these record shops and be in these record shops all day and the initial catalyst my love for soul music comes from my mum's Motown collection. My love for hip-hop, reggae, comes from my dad introducing me to Street Sounds electro tapes and lots of the old reggae sound system tapes. Mm -hmm. And I would, I would bunk school and stand in groove records and hear all of these American hip-hop imports and even early house imports, 85, 86, come into the shop into groove records or music power and I you know I was like a young pest just standing around <laughs> all day at this point in time I am really young and not going to clubs yeah. but I'm listening to pirate radio I'm listening to kiss fm people like you know jay strongman I'm listening to Joel's Pizza and I'm listening to Jazzy B mm -hmm. I'm listening to Jazzy M on LWR I'm listening to Westwood on LWR you can catch um, Rodigan on Radio London, Mike Allen on Capital, Dave Pierce on Night FM. So, as an 11 to 14 year old, I'm list, I'm consuming all of this stuff, all of this stuff. And in the mid 80s, there was like a big, rare groove resurgence on the radio. And I used to buy lots of. And if you're wondering how did this 11 to 12 year old buy all these records? I am. <laughs> me, me, me and my dad used to go out and rob phone boxes, and you'd, wow. you'd get you'd get the money out of the phone boxes, and then we'd go and spend most of it on records. Wow. So, um, I, whilst my initial love of buying records was all the hip hop that Mike Allen and Dave Pierce and Tim Westwood was playing, the more and more I was discovering people like Jay Strongman, Jazzy B, Joel's Peterson, the more and more. I've become engrossed in then the rare groove and the soul and the funk and I, I brought a, an album, a bootleg album called Rare Groove from Music Power Records in like 85 and Gwen McRae, all this love that I'm giving was on this album and it just, it, it blew me away from day one. Now obviously Gwen McRae, all this love that I'm giving is a world-renowned known tune now in this day but mm. back in 85 it was a sort after 12 inch to well, yeah i mean i think people often forget that it's called rare groove because it literally was rare you could in that time yeah. yeah in that period of like 85 it was rare and you couldn't find it and that's why you had all of these bootleg albums now and the reason why i've chosen this record is because i well, I don't know whether it is ironic or not at, at our age and the audience's age that I play to. So when it comes to like Centre Force events, 
rain dance events, moon dance events. A lot of them put me on last as well. A lot of a lot of these festivals and events put me on last. And I find myself ending like an 88, 89 house set or a hardcore set mm. with Gwen McRae, all this love that I'm giving. And it, it's a record no. as... And it's, it's a record that's been with me since I was 10, 11 years of age. Music's a beautiful thing and music's very honest. And a track like Gwen McRae appeals to everyone. And it's, and it's a real buzz to be able to go, here's what you, all, what you all expect from me, but then here is a piece of almost my childhood memories that yeah. we can all relate to. Normally at the end of the night, or, or when things are flagging a little bit in the middle of yeah. the middle of a rave or something, sometimes you need to change it up and just reset everything and, and yes. go again. And, and having those, you know, real classic eternal tunes is is a really important thing. And I think when you find really good DJs, they're the ones that um, have this kind of depth of taste. I think it's yeah. there, there are a lot of sort of people that jump on a bandwagon and get really good at something for a couple of years, but they can't sustain it because they don't have that grounding in all of these other types of music, which you so obviously do. And, yeah. uh, you know, it shows your, your third choice, Tenosaur and General Doogie, Chill Out, Chill Out. I mean, reggae and bass music and raves they were all just tied together so closely and you know certainly I can remember as a, a kid who grew up in a market town in Oxfordshire going to raves you know I'd never seen so many black people in my life there was one black family in our in our road you know what I mean and yeah but it brought us all together and then suddenly I had friends and then yeah. suddenly I was listening to the the pirate radio we could pick up at the top of Bretch Hill and we could tape reggae stations from out of London do you know what I mean and those yeah. tapes became part of our folklore and yeah. you know certainly reggae and dub had such a massive part not only in, in the music but in the actual structure of raves in the fact that we had giant PA systems in the fact that we had someone on the mic toasting away hosting the evening tell us a little bit about yeah. this tune and, and what it means to you Right, I'm going to be quite controversial here, Aaron. Okay. Right. Bring it on, bring it on. Now, I'm a humongous, massive hip-hop fan. Mm. I have lived and breathed and studied hip-hop. I have every book, every film, every documentary, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of hip-hop records from 1979 onwards, right? Mm-hmm. And... There's the huge celebration of 50 years of hip-hop going on. This, this huge celebration. And so much of it is a myth. You know, we have to, we're being told that on this date in 1973, 
hip hop magically just happened and yes. that was it from that day on <laughs> here we are 50 years later now as an absolute lover and historian of music and a geek and someone who who's had a misspent youth around records and studying records and studying the history of all this different music mm. right whereas hip hop talks about all these mythical block parties and mm. park jams between 73 and 83 there is n no recordings no visuals of this stuff whatsoever up to the point in which curtis blow and sugar hill gang go commercial mm. up to the point in which wild styles recorded now of course there would have been block parties and certain things and this that and the other happening right but reggae there's no mythical stories about reggae starting at this point. And be, literally there is an abundance, an absolute abundance of reggae footage showing reggae's authenticity to musical culture, not stories that have been passed down through mm. journalism and passed down through artists need to tell a story or record labels needs to make their artists look bigger or or add a few years onto the story or add a few little bits to reggae is right there from yeah. like the 60s to this day and like and i find it fascinating that there is so much footage of dancehall reggae and DJ, when I say DJing of mm. reggae, I mean the MC was yeah. called the DJ, yeah, yeah, yeah. and the and the DJ was called the operator, and there is so much footage from the eighties that capture that era that Tennessee is from. Yet mm. in hip hop, you're telling me that in the seventies filmmakers and, and television from all over Europe was going to America reporting on graffiti as far back as like the late 60s through to the late 70s where graffiti and rap was meant to be all combined and, and, and all happening yet no one stumbled on a block party mm. no one stumbled on this stuff and I'm really passionate about this because like I've studied it as I've done all my friends musical friends heads in and my wife's head in that like look that where is all the block parties but reggae doesn't boast that it created anything doesn't say that it's been around this long and that long and da 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 da, -da and created this and created that and there's all this amazing amazing footage from like the 70s and the 80s of like just such authentic reggae dancehall events with the with, with the DJs aka the MCs yeah. the operator selecting yeah. the tunes the style in which the the operator mixes in and chops one drops the the fader for the MC to chat over and at the moment like the reason why I chose Tennessee and General Doogie it, for many reasons it was the first reggae record I ever brought mm. in 1987 from body music in Tottenham <laughs> so I would have been 12 years of age again bunking school going around to record shops discovering music and and that was the first reggae record that I ever brought age 12 and reggae I feel on all of us and on all of us whether we like rave jungle acid hip-hop whatever it is that has a dj a sound system a vibe a baseline 
at the heart of it, owes everything. I, that is such a bold statement. Mm. Everything to the reggae DJ, aka the MC, and the operator, which would would be classed as a DJ in this moment in time. Yeah, there I... is such a huge, huge part of us being rave DJs in the late eighties, early nineties of playing music, massive sound systems. Someone ho because you did in raves have someone hosting it. So whether it yeah. was Chalky Chalky White or Moose or GQ, yeah. or whether it was me or Adrian Age at Labyrinth, it was always the big shout going out, this yes. one, that all comes from reggae, the big sound system. The, the, yes, a, a reggae DJ would have had one turntable, but the way in which he mixed in over, over the top of when the person was chatting on the mic, the, and if you look back to, to reggae dances, whether it's Coxon, whether it's Saxon, whatever it is in the UK alone, if you look back to reggae dances at like Stereo Mars and those kind of things in the 80s, mm. it is so reminiscent of like the early, the early rave scene up to like the early 90s. And I think reggae has a humongous, humongous influence in terms of DJ culture, the way we present music and the bassline. Of course, listen, I will never ever ever take away from like Craftwork, tangerine dream yellow magic orchestra and it's and its influence over techno and the yeah. electronic side even whether it's heaven 17 if it's human league look they're all of this stuff in its infancy mixed with reggae mixed with early break beats that influenced hip-hop created hardcore and jungles many years later but i think reggae absolutely the the basis and even down to this amen right mm. and i'm excited talking about this yeah i, can, I, mean, I love if, this i love if, this this is what you, we're all about if you go back if you go back to let's say stereo mars let's say the stereo mars sound system the whole like movement of the PMP rallies, the political movements of the time, the struggles in Trench Town, the different political parties on either side, like, just like in the, even, you can even down to the late 80s, early 90s, what I was talking about, the struggle must com continue, yeah. our music will not stop, we will continue to push our art and our love for the music and, you know, we, we've, with them it was the ganja and the music and the parties and the expression and no one no political movement's going to stop us no mm. the police are not going to stop us we we then took even that approach into the rave scene yeah. and it, it and you can really you can really sense it the essence of reggae being a movement and the the mc yeah. the the dj the whole thing that the movement of it and the way that it manifested and was all about we are in the dance or we're in the party and no one's going to stop this moment no one's going to stop our belief in our lyrics the yeah. the belief in our bass the belief in our music and the reason why i chose chill out one it's the first reggae record i brought Two, um, many reggae stars, many, many reggae stars have similar stories to Tennessee in which they're taken too young and there's mystery around yeah. why, why they were taken. Uh, 
and the essence of it chill out I love that the essence of it of like when and then when you go back and watch old reggae dancehall videos the the need to just be chilled the new the need yeah. to be chilled but feel the music Look, the 50 years of hip-hop thing is, is not really offensive to me, but I think there's questions that need to be asked. Well, certainly when you look at the, at the roots of hip-hop, I mean, DJ Cool Hurt gets kind of the nod as the first proper hip-hop DJ. But I, I, as far as I know, I think he spent some time in Jamaica. I think, he had, I think his parents are from Jamaica. So you absolutely have that, yes. So he's brought that kind of... He brought that culture into it. Exactly, which is, yeah. Which is not under question, I think... For me, I always wonder, like, how much is exaggerated with so much of it, whereas whereas reggae isn't. Reggae's yeah. right there, and actually is a real pioneering, domineering uh, force and influence in our rave culture, in DJ culture in general. Great things and great music come out of struggle, and the, the yes. original rave scene was so potent because it had its had its struggle of being heard. Yeah, definitely. And I, mean, I think it, we, we do often do a feature on uh, what goes around, but occasionally we do a feature uh, where we look at a type of music that just took hold in a specific area for some reason or other. And I think the fact that Jamaica is this island and just, be, you know, it was so concentrated the way that that music developed from Scar and Blue Beat and, you know, up, up right now to Bashment and the rest of it. You know, yeah. it, it, it's an incredible melting pot of personalities and struggle and, and joy as well. And yeah. it, it never seems to run out of steam. And like you say, it kind of, although, they, they, you know, the, there's a lot of proud history there, it doesn't get the props it should. You're quite correct to point that out. And I think uh, I think it's really good that you mentioned that. I think maybe a few people will go out and, uh, and have a bit of a, a deeper look now and, and, and see what they can find. Because I know... Certainly in those early um, raves, you know, when the rave music stopped, it was reggae we chilled out to in the morning. You know, it was yeah. when, during the raves, it was ragga that was being shouted over the top of the tunes, even though the tunes might have been like, you know, proper hardcore techno from Belgium. There was someone yeah. doing ragga over the top of it. And it, it was that kind of meeting of ideas and people that made the scene special. And um, maybe that's why we're still doing it. Yeah, and again, like back to back to the labyrinth era being so in the heart of Thorston, mm. you'd have like Kenny Ken, Adrian Age. They had, an, of course, they had an absolute 
understanding of Jamaican music and reggae music. One thing I wanted to ask before I let you go, um, you were there right during the whole evolution of rave through to hardcore and jungle, and I, like you, can remember perhaps about 95, 96, where suddenly everyone separated yeah. into their own little cliques, their own little genres, their own parties. I used to go, when I first started going raving, I would have Fabio Groove Rider, then I'd have Sasha, and have the great Stu Allen come on and play, you know. Yeah. And the, the mix was incredible. And then it did kind of separate out, and the music went really dark for quite a long time, and the scene fractured. How did you feel about the sort of... Uh, the the sort of storm cloud of moodiness that came into hardcore towards the end of its run because you didn't you didn't go with that a lot of a lot of the DJs at the time jumped into that with both feet but you wanted to keep pushing this happy uplifting good vibe well, well, how did you feel about all that that period right up to 9394 I fully fully embraced the, the moods of what was sort of darker hardcore, whether it was, you know, the Busy Bee remark mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. kind of stuff. I loved it and still to this day, love, like I played an event on Saturday and played lots of remark and Busy Bee in the set. And at the time, like at the turn of like 94, as a DJ at Labyrinth, especially playing the last set, there you had Labyrinth in Dalston, you had AWOL, in Islington mm. and then you had Innocence over in Peckham. Um, Innocence become much more darker mm. and industrial in its style. AWOL become jungle influence and also very forward thinking influence. They were breaking a lot of the like what would become known as like the standout drum and bass tunes yeah. of the era. And then Labyrinth was kind of in between the two. We were mixed again my need to play all of the different music we would play all of the different music that was coming out and being a a big e-head and i and i say that honestly being yeah. banging to my ecstasy um and being young like you know as well as being a dj i also believed in the ethos of i mean you were, you were still only 20 something weren't you you, you were 18 19 exactly that, yeah, so, you know. i used to have these moments like Let's let's take liquid. Liquid is liquid. Eamon made that record for my sets at like five thirty in the morning, and it, it was like from nineteen ninety to nineteen ninety five. I still had these moments where I wanted to end the night with a big piano tune, or yeah. at five thirty in the morning I wanted it to be a deeper, more melodic thing. I was really into sort of creating these anthems of labyrinth. They wasn't things that were getting played at the other clubs, and they made sort of like labyrinth. Because Labyrinth always had this tagline, only the happiest of people need apply. And it didn't necessarily <laughs> mean the music was always happy because music has so many moods. And yeah. I think what happened with me was like the, the standout tracks with the pianos in that sort of become Labyrinth anthems kind of swept me away with them. And then by the time I went into the studio and made my first music, then found myself up and down the country DJing, I found myself in this wave of the split and there was no more 
like I was doing at Labyrinth in 94, play it, mixing all of the music up. And suddenly you had to choose sides in a way. Yeah, yeah. And I always believed that all of the music could be mixed up and it got to a point, and again, this is down to an infancy in all of the DJs sort of finding themselves in this position and, you know, people chose, like, we're going this way or that, or we're going that way. And I did find myself getting swept along with with the happy, which I had no issues with. It, I, I went with it, and it, you know, the helter skelters, the yeah, yeah. destructions, the dreamscapes, the diehards, bowlers, Manchester fusion, Bristol exposure, all these places all over the country. I had no issues with it, and then once I got bored of it, then that's. 96, 97, that's when I started moving on again with trancier edges yeah. or harder hoovery edges. But the ironic thing is now, 30 years later, almost 30 years later, the new generation of promoters and DJs, they're now mixing it all up. They're doing the opposite of what we did in that period. They're finding all of this music and mixing it up. And that really invigorates me and that really excites me. And I think what that's down to is... If you go from 88 to 95, every summer we watch the music change. Every winter we watch the music change. We watch it speed up. We watched it become happier. We watched it become darker. We watched it become faster, slower in some instances. We, we slowly, slowly watched it do all of these different things over a five to eight year period. Whereas the new generation of DJs, promoters, producers, they can go on YouTube in a day. They've got it all, fl yeah. Flick through a Mickey Finn set, flick through a Slipmat set, flick through a Dougal set, flick through an LTJ Bookham set, find all the bits that they want, come away and they create a set with all of the different musics and it works. Whereas when we was all growing up in it and gradually slowly changing from month to month, season to season, year to year it was a long gradual thing to create all of this music whereas now it's it's literally with it at the click of a finger yeah. this new generation can find all of these vibes and it actually really really excites me like i'm playing for a lot of younger promoters and well this is exactly what i was i was just about to, to jump in and, and try and force this as an end point because you're still there you're still doing it. You're still right in the middle of, of that. And you're still, you're playing retro, you're playing future stuff. You're, yeah. you're you know, you, you're, you, you found your, your niche, if you like, in, in, a, in a few different ways. And yeah. um, you've still got a massive smile on your face. And like I say, whenever I look through your, uh, your Facebook feed, one of, one of the things that just brings me joy is, I don't think I've ever seen a picture of you not with, with a massive grin <laughs> on your face, do you know? What well, I mean? well, well, I'm ugly. I'm ugly enough as it is. So that, kind of, that kind of that kind of covers up my own ugliness. Well, listen, never change, Daniel. And thank you so much for talking you, to mate. us today. I really appreciated your time. Oh, I'm sorry, Eamon, Can I just mention yeah, my, yeah. my mental health? Yes, charity? please, please do that because you've, you've done so much great work. Please. Right. So my. Ch I founded a, ch a mental health charity called Safe Space Movement. If people go to safespacemovement.co.uk and they can look us up, check us out, see what we're doing. Our phone lines launched with a team of 20 call handlers who help people in need suffering with their mental health. Fantastic. It's something that I founded two years ago when 
my nephew in his 20s took his life during covid and it made me want to apply all of what I'd learned being a promoter, a DJ, someone who could gather people and create awareness, I wanted to apply what I'd the skills that I'd learned in music and utilize the, the following that I'd created. And I wanted to make a difference in the world and hopefully help people. And it's been a long two years in setting up, especially during COVID when we couldn't get meetings with the charity organization could get face-to-face meetings with banks and set things Mm. up and after two years of hard work and putting together an amazing amazing team our our phone lines launch and if that belief that i had that people could stick together and make great things happen not just on the dance floor but also in reality this charity is testament to that belief that I've always taken without the rave scene and the connections that I've made, this charity would not be launched. Yeah, well, I think absolutely fantastic cause and really needed. And, uh, you know, I feel a bit choked up thinking about it, but you've done incredible work. You've made hundreds of thousands of people really happy. And it's great to see you plowing back your love and enthusiasm to help people through difficult times so brilliant daniel billy bunter thank you very much for talking to us on what goes around thank you very much for having me hopefully i didn't diss 50 years of hip-hop because i like <laughs> I, lo- I love hip-hop i think you you did it with a with a, a good amount of critical eyes so that's but, but, uh, but, they're, but they're lying to us yeah yeah <laughs> no it's, I mean, it's, it's true man you're like you know. Hope you enjoyed this episode of What Goes Around. If you did and you feel like it, why not share your thoughts with others? Write us a review on iTunes or Apple Music or whatever they're calling it this week. Uh, You can like, you can subscribe to the podcast. And if you really, really love it and you have friends you think would love it too, please do share it around. We uh, would love you to spread the word.